are back. What's up, everybody? Faith in the Fresh Five podcast. I am Ro Hattie coming at you from Treaty 7 lands in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. But we're going clear across the continent on this one with my friend Drew Hart, Dr. Drew Hart. Drew and I met a few years ago. It was a fortuitous connection. I'll talk about it at the very start of this one. Two parts in front of you here, friends, and you're going to love the content. It's very apt that these podcasts are coming out in Black History Month in the month of February. Drew's going to share with us some insight about his book and also some insight about where the church is going tomorrow. That's a really neat conversation we have. The book and the conversation about the church will be in part two. Part one is going to introduce Drew, his work, his voice, and uh, we'll learn a little bit more about the political situation in America, specifically. We're going to talk about activism and policy development, all these really interesting things. And the awesome layer here for listeners is just the level of wisdom. It's a wealth, a treasure trove of wisdom here from Dr. Hart. Find his books, Who Will Be a Witness, is the most recent one. And also, Trouble I've Seen has come out. That's a couple years old, maybe a few years old now. So part one, we get into the nitty-gritty of injustice, racialized inequality, ways to fix that, the state of the church. And then part two, we dig into his book and chat a little bit more about a hope for tomorrow. So let's jump in. Uh, Drew and I, we met, uh, I was thinking about this, was it two or three years ago? Yeah, was that, I'm not sure if that was, was that 2017? Was it 2017? I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. Whenever okay. it was. Yeah, Montreal. Montreal. Yep. That worked out for me, but um, it uh, it was good for me because when, when you go to conferences and things like that, you generally don't get to hang out with Ed Stetzer or, you know, whoever the big names are, right? And be like, hey, would you like to come out for a drink, sir? And um, Drew and I were like the two of three people of color at this conference. Maybe not quite. It was close, though. Close. Um, I, rem- I remember some of your 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 talks poignant, but you were kind of calling out and looking for <laughs> some familiar faces there, and and there were probably like three or four black folks. It was a little weird, and I was reminded how white the vineyard was and is. But uh, yeah, and we got to hang out for two three days, I think. Yep, absolutely. I remember us sitting in a, a little. Irish bar of all bars, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in Montreal, and you were going through. Um, I, I thought it was more powerful after a couple of pints, but you were talking about you're using the bar stool and talking about decentering whiteness. And uh, I read it in your book, "Who Will Be a Witness: Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance." So, welcome to the show. Uh, do you want to? intro about your work and who you are and where you are situated right now in the world? Yeah, yeah. So um, I live on the the stolen lands of the Susquehannock, which is in central Pennsylvania in a city now called Harrisburg, PA. Um, I teach, I'm an assistant professor of theology at Messiah University, and I'm the newly director over a program called Thriving Together, um, Congregations for Racial Justice, and author of two books, uh, Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism, which came out in 2016, and Who Will Be a Witness, which came out this past uh, spring, uh, September. And um, I'm married, uh, and I, I got three little boys, and they're, they're rambunctious. 
Um, and I'm also highly involved in a lot of stuff. I'm a, I'm a leader in a group called uh, Free Together, which is here in Harrisburg. It's completely voluntary work that I do, uh, but it brings together an ecumenical group of Christian leaders in our city uh, working for justice here locally. Um, so I guess that's a good mix of some of the stuff that, uh, uh, that I do and who I am. What was the new um, organization you're the director of? That is called Thriving Together, Congregations for Racial Justice. We just yeah, got that? a Lilly grant for $1 million. Um, they call that Little League there? Lilly, Lilly grants. So it's this big Christian foundation that they just have too much money. And so they're always just giving money away for different projects and stuff like that. But we proposed one on um, race and the church. Um, and we got, we, there were actually lots and lots of applicants. So we were grateful that they chose our program. We'll be working here locally in, in the community. Um, so it's a regional program helping churches understand race and place and how those two fit together yeah. and the way that racism has developed racial segregation, racial oppression, exclusion, advantage, disadvantage, all that kind of stuff on a local regional level how, how do we tell our stories locally in, in more truthful ways and then how do we engage and so we're going to help churches also not only learn that kind of stuff but then how to refresh their mission and values and reflect on their own tradition where they come from and its own complicity just a whole bunch of stuff and, and empower them to get more involved in racial justice work locally so so it officially starts in january but we've already begun at least um you know trying to get some administrative work behind the scenes going and then we'll start launching getting applicants in the spring and running a, a cohort uh, with, with different folks in our region and so yeah we're excited to to try to make an impact because you know the church right now pretty much certainly throughout the United States and I imagine just as much in Canada um, churches are not being the church so so we've got to mm. um, uh, awaken them to to the needs and the realities of our time. I think it's easy to point the finger at denominations, uh, and we rightly should. The lack of a prophetic voice in the major denominations, the white-centered, Euro-centered denominations, are struggling to figure out what it means to respond to injustice, struggling to come up with contemporary responses to the things that matter in the lives of people today. What does that response look like? It depends on the denomination, but yeah. So if you think, if you're thinking of like some of the more mainline denominations, absolutely. They'll have some kind of, you know, Thing. office or organization yeah. that's doing okay. some of that kind of work. Um, what you see certainly in our region is what happens at the denominational level has almost nothing to do with what's going on at the congregational level. Right. Um, mm. And then the evangelical churches, I mean, they don't even, they, they think it's all, you know, um, you know, they think Marxism is, is the devil incarnate. Socialism. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah. Hell, you even read Marx before? Jeez. Right. No, they don't. They haven't read it. And the, when they throw it out, it's not even, it has nothing to do with Marxism. It's just them using a word that they think will scare and stigmatize folks, right? Um, and so it's dishonest. It's, it's not uh, entering into conversation um, as faithful dialogue partners, but it's just the same old stigmatizing that white people have been doing for, for a very long time. Uh, you're called to, to teach. Um, I know you value that work. You are in the capital of Pennsylvania, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm just working on the geography here. And you teach at a, a, at a predominantly white um, college. Is it a, an Anabaptist University? Its roots are in the Anabaptist tradition out of the Brethren in Christ, um, which is a little bit more out of all the denominations, the more evangelical of them. Um, and I would certainly say that compared to some of the other Anabaptist uh, universities, it's more evangelical than probably most are. And so it, I would say it, well, it's, it's very, on one hand, it's way more ecumenical than most evangelical uh, colleges are right here like you can teach you can be eastern or we got we've had eastern orthodox catholic and we have multiple many episcopalian and more liberal you know professors and stuff like that mm. um but the majority of the student body is evangelical conservative evangelical i mean that's that's the bread and butter of who attends christian colleges right 
Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so that's some of the reality. But so there's an Anabaptist lightness to it. Um, so we don't have like an American flag um, waving on our campus and any of that kind of stuff, which always, most students don't recognize that till they're here, then they got a problem and think that, you know, we're, we're the devil or something. But um, so there's some features that allow us to be a little bit different um, and kind of resist some of the religious nationalism, but it's also um, deeply embedded in those things just culturally because of who, what bodies find themselves on this campus. How do you then place your body in many respects? So we were talking off air and you were, you were sharing how you took it as a, um, you want to work with and see transformation in every one of your students as they venture through, and predominantly white evangelical students, as they venture through your classes, including classes on uh, black theology. Um, how does it, like, how do you not, and you must, how does that not take a toll on the body? Oh, it, it, it absolutely does, right? There's no way to engage white supremacy manifested, especially in a theological dialogue, right? It's always going to be there. And so, yeah, it does. And I mean, a few things that I've done and chosen is, number one, like, I live in Harrisburg in a predominantly black neighborhood because, in fact, people are like, why do you want to live in Harrisburg? You know, the school districts are struggling. I'm like, I, I know how to live in a black community and keep my sanity, right, among my people. Um, mm. And for my own kids' sake, right? But mm. I said, what I don't know is if I were to live in your neighborhoods um, and allow and to be among your kids who you're not teaching how to be anti-racist, what that, the psychological damage that it would do to my kids, right? I don't know how to undo that, but I do know how to operate in a mm. black community. And so I think for me, being able to have be rooted in spaces where I can be affirmed because of who I am, where I can give, receive, and share love in honest ways, not just being exploited or used or seen as a resource, right, or any of those kind of things, um, that those things are really important for me. Uh, because the, the, I'm, I'm not naive by this point, man. I've been, I've been in the game for, you know, at least actively engaging in these kind of conversations for about 15 years. So I, I understand the, the way that white supremacist space can eat away at you. And you've got to have practices to renew your soul. You've got to have community um, and be rooted in those things. So when I go do that work, I'll give you a, a mini story. When I came back, yeah. my, uh, one of my colleagues, um, Emerson Powery, excellent black biblical scholar, who's also in my department. And he, um, he said, <laughs> Welcome to the mission field, right? And and that's how I kind of think about my work, right? So they, it's funny because, you know, evangelicals have they, their own very diseased way of thinking about missionaries, right? <laughs> um, that is just about colonization, really. That's been its legacy. But, but here I see myself um, offering good news to folks that really need it, um, and, and I say, they don't know the Jesus I know, right? Mm. Um, and no, so I'm, no. I'm trying to share and invite them into something much better, a better way of life, a better way of being in the world. And so that's some of the work that I see my my role, not just like some professors, you know, they just think, oh, I just come into the classroom and I don't care what how people respond. No, man, I, because I do realize this is the tricky part. Even as I say, we want to live in ways, ways of being that decenter whiteness, I also need white people to die of their whiteness, right? To, and so if I'm going to be in that space, then I'm definitely committed to that kind of, I'll call it evangelical work, right? We'll call it that, to be a little troublesome. Um, not that I use evangelical necessarily as a label for myself, but I do, although I hang out quite a bit with evangelicals in a whole variety of ways. Even the, I mean, we were talking earlier, the book, Evangelical Theology's Liberation and Justice, right? When I was invited to participate in that book, um, Andy Smith, she reached out to me and, and I told, you know, I don't really use the label, but I'm like, I have no problem being associated with all y'all because y'all good folks, right? Um, really good, mostly evangelicals of color. Um, and, and I teach mm -hmm. at a now evangelical institution, pre yeah. predominantly evangelical institution. And so that's space that I don't mind doing that. So in that kind of, and what I understand evangelical to be 
in the truest sense is to preach good news of Jesus and his new reign, his new world's coming, right? Um, and I'm all about that. Yeah, it sounds different in a way, just your posture engaging with white evangelicalism. Um, I like your, that's the title of your next book, Die of Your Whiteness. You hang on to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll give you that one. You can take that one. Um, your posture there isn't so much like many POCs and like almost every, like right now in the world, in the Twitter world, let's say the social media world, um, POCs, especially black folks, are are once again disappointed by the SBCs. Uh, their whatever seven presidents of their universities right, coming right, out and right. denouncing critical race theory, right? As if they are surprised by the notion that once again white evangelicals right. let them down. I'm like, what, what do you expect? I did say actually. Like, I, so there'll be a, a episode come in. I'm with like Lisa Sharon Harper and others. We're actually dialoguing for Freedom oh, yeah, Road yeah, podcast. Yeah. Okay, so that's gonna be coming. But that's what I, my my whole thing. Like, look, it's the SBC <laughs> Southern Baptist like. Like, of course, they, they're the most they're traditionally, and this is not just, this is not name calling or anything, but they're the most white supremacist denomination in the United States, just historically. That's just what they are. It's not a, yeah. it's not a, a demonization. It's not stigmatizing them. This is just historical fact. Um, and so they've never done, so anyway, it, it's just, of course, that's what they're going to do, right? Because it undermines, critical race theory undermines their very being, their very way of operating. Mm. You can't even make statements like they did if you actually engage critical race theory, because then you'd realize you had excluded all people of color from the conversation <laughs> and then expect to control and, and, and have everyone fall in line to your terms of debates, your terms of conversation, your, your framing of things, right? Um, that's universalizing oneself. That's normalizing one's own interpretation and experience without engaging in good faith dialogue with others. So, um, of course, what else do we expect, right? I don't know. I'm sorry. But then you still have within that conversation the odd person who is, I've been, you know, I put in 10 years of my life and I got chewed up and spat out. And I hear that or see that a lot from uh, POCs who have the sense that all things are not right, that they are being demanded to assimilate in some manner within their faith community. But they have this hopefulness that the more they pour their body and soul into this community, that change is a coming. And I feel as though your posture, at least your space, A, you are fully cognizant of what the space can do for you or will do. Uh, but you also yeah. don't have a sense of, of I'm going to save this. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, in fact, I'm always... I. So one of the challenges I've been thinking about since I came back to teaching, because it's just, I'm in my fifth year of teaching now, is I'm... I'm inclined to like, I'm activist oriented, right? I'm organizing oriented, I'm systems oriented, right? But at the same time, like, so I do do some of that stuff while I'm on campus just because I can't help myself. I, I, I go to the president's like, no, we got to talk about something, you know? I can't help myself, but do that kind of stuff. But at the same time, like, I'm always pulling myself back from doing too much there. And, and I'd rather do way more in my local neighborhood because at the end of the day, this institution will change when white people want to change. And it will not change <laughs> if they don't want to, right? Like, I'm not going to be their savior. Um, it doesn't matter how passionate I am about it. Um, and so I'll show up genuine to who I am, truthful. Um, but at the same time, like, that's on white people's responsibility. That's why I, I, I even push on um, how they use students of color on campus in terms of scholarships. There's these requirements for you know, these multicultural scholarships and things that they offer. And they, and part of it is leadership on campus and all things. And like, so, so you want to make student, uh, students of color, their responsibility to fix your institution, which they can't do. They don't have the power to anyway, but then, but just the, the power and the lack of responsibility over whose problem this is and who actually has the power to fix it. I think um, that we've got to be honest about that. So yeah, so absolutely, I, I'm I'm very aware of what it is, what I can do in that space, 
Um, and especially, I think, in terms of in the classroom, that's, that's the space that, that I own, right? Mm. Um, that's the space I control. Mentorships, walking along certain students, those are things that I have a lot of impact and control over. And there's a lot of stuff that I don't. Again, I am oriented in some way, so it's not like I'm just hands off. I actually sometimes wish I was a little bit more um, because I'm, I'm conscious of, you know, how much energy you can get sucked into putting towards an institution that you can't control and that won't change unless they themselves want to change. Is this your role right now? Is that kind of the, it's a good space now, but is that the, the dream that you have in a predominantly white evangelical space uh, when it comes to your work? So it's certainly not my dream, right? It's not like if I were to go to bed and dream up my perfect scenario that that's what I would come to. That said, like, there's, like, I also am not, like, I didn't do a national search for jobs. I was looking at jobs in Philadelphia and Harrisburg because those are, those are two cities that I have deep roots in. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I got community yeah, yeah. there. I that got matters. roots in. And so when I think about just options and what's available certainly in Harrisburg I there's very few other options that are realistic for me um, in terms of living here maybe in Philly a better job could come up that that could entice me who knows and so I am I'm big about community just as much about what job I'm working in given that there are some things that are nice about my position in terms of my actual department itself is mm-hmm. top-notch I'll put our biblical and religious studies department up against anybody's. It's awesome. And I get to teach what I want, right? Um, I get to teach black theology, get to teach Anabaptists. I teach a, I teach a course called mobilizing congregations for justice. Right. Um, I mean, like I can be fully myself in the classroom Mm. in that kind of way in terms of coursework and know that I have department support and even the president's support. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those things I don't take for granted, um, even though it's not ideal in many other ways in terms yeah, of just yeah. the over, it's not even that I, I don't mind engaging even conservative evangelicals, right? Because, but, but I do wish that it was representative. It was a little more ecumenical in terms of the spread and distribution of students. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when they make up, I'm going to make up a number, I'll say 75% of the student body um, that that's going to shape the culture of, of the institution significantly as well. I really value your your take and and around roots. I just feel that it, maybe that's the world of academics, but for many of us, we lack a sense of of roots in our neighborhood, around our people, around our place. Uh, churches are like that as well. Um, some churches, I should say, many many are operating, especially in the inner city, who have been there since the beginning, really, um, understand roots. Yeah. Um, without those roots and without uh, the stories of the people who have been there, I don't know how you succeed in moving forward towards uh, restoration and reconciliation. Even we, you started off, and I usually start off the podcast with, with uh, just at least acknowledging the land, which is a callback to the stories that the, that the land has. Like, the land doesn't forget the stories that have come before you. That's a powerful narrative uh, to, mm. to hang on to. So uh, I'm, uh, I feel you when you're yeah. drawing into both the opportunity right. that you have to be yourself mm-hmm. and also the roots yeah. that you have in the two places. Uh, they matter, and they matter deeply. More of us should come alongside this notion of, of, of people in place, I think the church would do well to adopt, you know, less churches out in the farmer's field and industrial area, because that's the cheapest place you could find to build a big box and, and more revitalizing those, those broken down inner city churches. Going back to our, the conversation there on, on what POCs are doing in predominantly white spaces, and I'm just sort of thinking of, of the typical listener of, of this podcast. You think it's a lack of an awareness of what's going on around them, of where power structures might be hidden, or is it something else that's, that's giving them this sense of, of yeah. unbridled hope in many ways that things could change? 
Oh, yeah, it could be, some of it could be power analysis, right? Um, I think that we sometimes have unsophisticated ways of analyzing and thinking about power and institutional power, right? So we just see who's at the top. That's why, um, and it's not that who's at the top doesn't matter, right? I mean, so we'll use Donald Trump as an example, right? It matters when you have someone like Donald Trump in the past. I mean, he had enormous rhetorical power and the hegemonic influences that he had um, will not be going away anytime soon, right? And that's actually the precisely what we got to keep track of is that the power isn't just in the office. Mm. The office has power, but there's also other kinds of power. In fact, that kind of hegemonic lording over others kind of power is only given by the people. <laughs> mm. Like if people don't give him power, Donald Trump has no power. Um, and so we've got to understand more complex ways, the pillars, that's how I talk about it, who will be a witness, or right? the pillars of power that bolster people. Um, and so if we don't understand what those pillars are that are upholding any given, let's say, tyrants, right? Um, then you're going to be just aiming at them and not knocking down the pillars that actually sustain, you know, uh, that person's influence to begin with. None less than to talk about things like uh, invisible power and informal power, right? I mean, you get into churches, I always say, you know, yeah, pastor has some power, but oftentimes there's somebody sitting in that second mm. pew who with that certain last name or they, you know, write the big check or whatever it is, right? Or the squeaky wheel, whatever that they're, they're operating and wielding an inordinate amount of power in that space and in that community that people don't necessarily always realize, right? And so you, people are just looking at, oh, this is the polity structure. You got a church board. That's, that's not how communities work. That's mm. how organisms work. And you got to have a more sophisticated way of understanding how power mm. works. And churches of all places are so, are so naive when it comes to power. Um, and don't like talking about it, having honest, frank conversations about how power is being wielded in spaces. And so same thing, you take that to institutions um, and, and we have an oversimplified understanding of, of what the challenges are before us and what it's going to actually take to change. Now, it's not actually that things can't change. Like I'm a, I'm a social change kind of guy, right? Um, and I actually believe there's actually things that we can learn from others in terms of what that can look like to actually um, bring about real, true social change, whether it be in the neighborhood or in an institution. Um, there are things that work um, that we can try to draw from, right? It doesn't guarantee anything, but that are effective practices in general that we can learn from. And so, um, but most people are not doing their homework. We're not learning from those who came before us. Mm -hmm. And so someone gets awakened and then we just rely only on our own analysis and our own eyes and not drawing from others. And I think that that is... Um, unfortunate when we don't stand on the shoulders of those who've come before us. And and we don't even have to pull that far back. I think it, it's easy to just look at the generation or not even behind you uh, or sometimes beside you of those who have said, don't do it. You right. are going to go in and get your ass whooped every day thinking that things right. can change. Right, right. You're going to be the, the super Negro uh, that's in the black community, right? You know, there's always that one, they get propped up. Um, but they, you know, anytime there's expectations on a position to change an institution, you're already in trouble. Now, it doesn't mean that you can have a position if there's other things in place, but they've got to do the work. It's not up to an individual to do the work. It just, it just doesn't work that way. It will never work that way. My take on the power structures as you were were sharing, churches, white churches, perhaps any church, but white churches specifically, I don't hold out a ton of hope that they have the capacity or willingness to bring forward systemic change where these both white churches, but rooted in white denominations and the systems of power that have maintained them, can switch into a space of becoming diverse. That's different than becoming a more justice-oriented or even perhaps becoming anti-racist as a congregation. But I don't think they can make that shift into that being safe and diverse spaces because those power structures are so deep. You know, maybe I'm, I'm being too harsh, but... There are some that can become more diverse... 
but they but then you added the safe word right <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so there are institutions that know how to bring people in and then eat them alive um yeah but they, well, they all do right right but not diverse <laughs> and anti-racist simultaneously very few are doing that right i think about so on evangelical church side there's only one denomination that at least seems to be struggling with this in any kind of meaningful way. And that's the evangelical covenant church, right? That's the only one that I see struggling with it at all. Um, mm. And so they are a, I, I would, I think they're a majority white denomination, um, but they're, but they have a large um, racial minority, you know, um, demographic in that denomination and many powerful leaders of color across certainly the United States in that denomination. And they have, you know, so Dominic Gilliard, who wrote Rethinking Incarceration, right? He's the director of racial righteousness and stuff like that. And other, so they do have something. And so that's the only denomination I even see struggling in, in genuine mm-hmm. ways with some of these things. They're not a perfect denomination. Anybody that, if you talk to them, they'll, they'll tell you they've got all kinds of challenges and issues that they're dealing with themselves as well. But outside of that, I can't even think of any other white evangelical denomination that even cares, <laughs> nonetheless, oh, you know, please. Yeah. I mean, they just don't care about it. And so, and then if you go on the mainline side, yeah, I think that they're more likely to have justice stuff in place, mm-hmm. but they're not willing to die to their whiteness enough to no. become something else, right? They're too committed to how they go about being, you know, whether it be Lutheran or Episcopalian or Presbyterian, I'm calling out names now. Um, they're, they're, they love their own ways of being more than they love um, joining and, and becoming something else and belonging with their brothers and sisters mm. in Christ. They love to be progressive, but they're not too interested in ultimately breaking down the power systems within their own spaces. Um, and, and evangelicals, same thing here. Same thing here. It's probably because they're all rooted in in their their dad's religion from America, but evangelicals have barely touched the surface around uh, indigenous relationships. Oh yeah. yeah, and and mainline are certainly far further ahead in all these aspects. But again, the power systems they're they're never going to shift beyond their whiteness. They would they would sooner die, which is fine. Uh, then, then shift, which is why all of them, but evangelicals in particular, when May 2020 rolled around, and congregations at least, and it might have been generational, but t- congregations were starting to press for some type of response to the calls towards uh, justice, uh, racialized justice, the calls um, against anti-blackness, they had no response. Right. They just had nothing. They're kind of looking behind them and realizing, well, what do we, what do we do? And this is not a conversation that they had had. And in many ways, and this will sound very crass, but COVID gave them a cover to let this thing blow by and not respond. Yeah, if that's too crass. Yeah, I think but... a cover, and and I would say there were some churches, there were some leaders that were trying to speak up for the very first time, but mm-hmm. it was clear that they had never thought about it before. I don't know if you remember mm-hmm. the whole uh, white blessings uh, scandal of I don't know was it over the summer or whatever. I don't know if you missed that one or uh, not. No, yeah, yeah, that one. Whoosh. Like, okay, thank you, God, you, I you're missed better that. for for not knowing. <laughs> uh, but I'll give you the rundown. <laughs> there's this. There's a some famous people having an online conversation on race. People that should not be leading conversations on race because they had, had never done the work. And oh, the one, I know what you're ta- uh, the one pastor. He's talking about slavery and he didn't want to use the word white privilege, right? Mm. Um, so he says that white people have gained white blessings from slavery because he was trying to he was trying to Christianize it. That was the interesting part, right? He wanted to Christianize the language. And so he called it white blessings instead of white privilege. And of course, there was all kinds of blowback on him. But what I actually found was more interesting. I said, you're missing actually what's really more fascinating in this whole conversation is he actually used white blessings in the very way that most Christians use blessings. He's actually, he's actually just exposing the logics, right? Mm, mm, um, mm. That the way he yeah, uses yeah. blessings is that it's material, it's the gains and everything. So if you, you have wealth, you have the big house, you have all these yeah, things, yeah. you're blessed by God, 
right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, he's consistent. He's not using it wrong. He's actually using, in the evangelical sense, the right way. He's exposing the problematic way in that, that the logics of divine blessing in white evangelical mindset and white Christianity probably in general has been co-opted up in a colonized imagination um, that can't see the, the death-dealing ways that, that resources mm. and wealth have been exploited mm-hmm. and have been stolen from others, right? Um, and so, so for me, that's, more, that's more, the more interesting story. Aside from his slip, oops, right? I let it out, oh, out yeah. the bag, is <laughs> that he's actually exposing that his understanding of blessings is actually contrary to the way of Jesus, where the mm. poor are blessed, right? The hungry are blessed. Um, it's actually an inverse of all those things. Um, and so uh-huh. that's, that's the real powerful story that I think I, that we, most people miss because they're just mm. upset that he, he used the coded li- language at the wrong time, yeah. right? You're not Racism supposed to use light. it yeah. and say blessings during slavery. You're just supposed to talk about when you get the bigger house, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's, um, he is merely matching the gaze the expectation of the white male gaze in our world that those those things at the very top you're supposed to find something that matches you talk about that in your book on on uh, reimagination of well it's not a reimagination a recall to um a new set of economics yeah i remember econ 101 my first degree is in economics and uh, the base of, the, of our existence, in capitalism at least, the base is supply and demand and, and a race to the bottom to produce scarce resources. So all resources are scarce. First day. Hmm. If you don't understand all resources are scarce and we're racing to the bottom to produce as fast as we can to make profit, then the rest of the system falls apart. And everyone's utility is based on that production model. Yeah. That's why so many people are so tired in COVID in this pandemic world, because we're wondering, A, we're wondering, am I supposed to be doing more right now? <laughs> and B, some people are merely trying to produce enough utility to survive within the system. What a messed up world, man. Yes, it is. Yeah, I don't remember the white blessing now. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> yeah, we got to sit with that. I think, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it changes, it distorts the whole value system. I mean, that's what Dr. King was saying. We needed to undergo a radical revolution of values to move from a profit-oriented society to a people-oriented society. No, a thing-oriented society to a people-oriented society. But it is in, in our capitalist system, we value profits over people, right? And we'll exploit them and use them and squeeze them out for all the labor. Uh, meanwhile, not, you know, giving fair livable wages to people who are doing all the work. Um, and so people are struggling. People are trying to squeak by. Um, and, and if you're still being exploited by the system, but also believing in the system itself, then it's just also perpetuating it. And so sometimes even our own communities that are impacted most sometimes don't even realize that the system is rigged Mm. against us. It was never Mm -hmm. designed for us to to succeed. Mm -hmm. And not rigged in, and you might process that and say in what single manner it's it's not one manner the system is rigged there are multiple different rigging spaces and places and yeah, yeah it's <laughs> it's one big racket right of yeah yeah the the transfer of of uh social co- or, or rather costs for underpaying your workers is is what oh it's so clever the way that corporations or or that system will transfer the cost uh into the social purse right that's a vicious, never-ending cycle. Yeah. I wonder then to what manner the church can really come on board here and make a difference. So l- let's take a jump then into parts of your book. There is a role and a place where activism comes in to play that the church can now embody features of activism to elicit change uh, in their midst. But then there's also where I tend to uh, fall and I wonder if it's cultural, but I'm still processing this, in 
the policy development or policy shifting. Now, they do have a connection at some point. In what manner does activism lead into systemic changes? I think we can do large, so big, huge systemic shifts and also, say, smaller neighborhood ones. It seems easier to do small, but... Yeah. So number one, I would say not all activism was created equally, right? So not all mm. activism leads to change, right? I mean, mm. um, and as I would say, beware of activism, and this goes back to not being rooted in anything, right? Um, because so if you just wake up, you just realize the problem, you're like, all right, so I'm going to be an activist. And so you're like, I'm going to get on Facebook and I'm going to get people together. And we're going to have a rally, you know, the next day. All right. So we have a rally. All right. Everyone, and everyone gets to say their thing. And then everyone goes their home separate ways. And maybe we're still riled up. So we do that way two more times and stuff. And then we go our separate way. And then, then that's it. Right. And nothing has really changed. Maybe people are a little bit more passionate. I don't know, but, but, but it's not, there's nothing strategic about what was being done. It's just activism because we know we should be active but we don't know how we should be active. Um, but I think that there are, there's, there is activism that is deeply committed to, to social change, right? To changing policies and institutions and practices and the ways that we, the narratives and stuff like that, that shape our lives. That end of it is always thinking about its end goal. What, what are we working towards? What's this new world that we're working towards and how do we get there? What kind of policies um, and what's the narrative and all that kind of stuff? That's work that has to be done on the ground. And I would say, and maybe this, so being coming from, you know, the African-American community here in the United States, like we, you know, for the, for the majority of our history, we didn't have access to even voting, Right. Hmm. Um, I mean, you go back 1850, it's not a matter of, oh, we're going to vote in what we want and try to get our pot. That's just not even an option. But hmm. black people are not sitting around twiddling their thumbs because of that. Right. They're organizing, they're active, they're pamphlets, abolitionists. They're, so they're doing all the work still. Right. Um, after slavery is done, you know, for another hundred years. Right. We don't have the majority of African-Americans are still disenfranchised, don't have access and resources um, to, to engage in the kind of standard channels of social change uh, through the electoral politics and things like that. But they're not sitting around. Right. They're actually on the ground doing all the work, creating organizations and stuff um, to make social change happen um, and do so. In fact, I would often remind black folk today is what we forget is we now put so much weight on just the electoral system, not all black folks, but there's a large percentage that do mm. today and forget the very thing, the means that actually got us the vote, right? That's, mm. the, that's really the more interesting thing is that we forget the very grassroots strategies that actually got us the vote. Um, and, and, we, and we kind of water down and domesticate our memory of how it got. So we just think, oh yeah, Dr. King, and there were some marches, right? And so that's why today, I think that's why we have such uh, superficial activism today is because you think about, oh yeah, we just gotta have a rally and a march. No, it's organizing, it's strategy, it's planning, it's re-strategizing. It's, you know, um, it's actually, you got to put in some work. Um, you got to be creative, right? Um, you got to resist. So my ideal would be is that those things can converge. It's not that we, we actually need some folks engaging at the policy level, or at least at the very minimum, people in good faith that will respond to the people, right? So it doesn't work mm-hmm. under a Trump, right? You don't have a good faith person that's going to respond so let's say, uh, like, I don't have high opinions of, of Joe Biden, but I do think that he can be pushed into better positions than he is, right? That, yeah. that's, that's his potential, right? Not that he comes with, with good policies. That's the maybe. Yeah. That's the maybe. But, he, but I do think org- organizations that are on the ground doing the grassroots work can push him to better mm. positions. Um, mm-hmm. And mm. so I think that that's where some of that organizing work can be really powerful in, in particular moments in, Um, But anyway, there's a whole bunch of different strategies and ways that people Mm -hmm. do that work. So it has to be policy oriented, right? We have to be thinking about the ways that we structure our society, the ways that it, how we organize our society and how it impacts people's lived experiences every day. Um, That has to be, you you can't lose sight of that. Just rallying just for the sake of rallying is not going to get the work done that we want. 
There seems to be two f- critical features here, at least in, in this in our conversation surrounding activism and policymaking, ultimately to elicit some form of systemic change or some manner of, of change. Uh, the first one around activism is, is you use the word uh, s- strategic. Yeah. Um, that requires, however, I, and, and in some sense this is ironic, but it requires a level of centralization of movements, of movements being uh, very decentralized grassroots, but it requires some structure. sense yeah. of yeah. both structure, but particularly around the centralization of messaging. What are you calling for and, and what is the dream and hope that you're yeah. striving towards? Absolutely. Or you'll get a an Occupy, you know. Right. That's why Occupy failed. What did it stand for? Still don't know. Though I, I do argue that Occupy was a little bit more than what it, because I do think if you think about Occupy, I do think it failed because it needed more structure, right? I think it would have been stronger. But I will say this, like even, even a short-lived but long enough sustained movement um, helped to change some narrative discourse so that in the United States, probably mm, not as much mm-hmm. in Canada, but in the United States, I mean, we were just, I mean, there was just no conversation around poverty. It was all about the, the, the people would talk about the, the wealthy and the owners and stuff like that. And yeah, they would talk about the, the middle 100%. class. That's what, poli- yeah. that's what politicians okay. did, right? The middle mm-hmm. class. And mm-hmm. it was for the mm-hmm. very first time that a broader um, mainstream conversation actually happened where we could say the top 1%. No one was naming that. The top, mm-hmm. oh, or the, mm-hmm. the bottom 40% have the same wealth as the top one. You know, like these are things that were introduced new to the mainstream rhetoric um, that actually created, I'd say, the possibility for like Bernie Sanders to, to run, right? Or things like that. Um, so I do, hmm. so even movements that could have been organized better, right? Um, I do think that movements can do more in terms of the cultural moment, shifting um, and taking advantage of a cultural moment in ways that, same thing I would say, uh, me too, right? I mean, mm. they and there were some mini legal things and, and stuff that was going on, but it was more of a cultural movement that has shaped new mm. conversations and discourses. So I don't completely, even though I'd want to see more organization and some of that kind of stuff, more structure, more aligned goals and more focus. Um, but, but even there's, there's a place for protest movements too, um, even when they're short-lived and they're, weren't, they're not well-organized, right? So long as they're more than just three rallies, right? Um, but if there's something else that they're tapping into, because sometimes it's not even about, sometimes it's just the, the, the inertia of the moment, there's a cultural moment and an opportunity that's there. Mm-hmm. And at the very minimum, we need to at least stand up and, and be present for that moment. And that can sometimes create something more than any of us are even imagining. Yeah. Now that you bring that up, the narrative absolutely did shift. I, I would be curious to know, because that's what we remember, the 1% versus the 99, right? Where that w- originated from. Yeah. Um, and what, whether or not all the fragmented groups had they latched on to some semblance uh, of of messaging would have sustained themselves into into something else. Um, I, I wonder then if the the current and and now we have social media picking up uh, in May now largely accomplished the same thing when it came to at least shifting narratives surrounding systemic racism. Like who, who, who said anti or even used anti-racism before other than activists. And now suddenly there's been a massive shift, at least in for, for white folks. I mean, that's the whole, so going back to Southern Baptist, they don't care about critical race theory, but all of a sudden that word and it's a seen a threat is that's it's strong enough of a momentum and a narrative shift that they see it now as a threat to themselves, right? Well, just, you know, go six months before that, they're not worried about critical race theory. <laughs> President Trump isn't worried about critical race theory before that, right? And so there's we actually something powerful about um, mm. th- that we've got people on their heels. I mean, that's really what it is. Mm. Some folks are on their heels uh, because, so I, I do think, in fact, this is my one critique of um, Kendi's work, right? Um, how to be mm-hmm. anti-racist, stuff like that is, um, and some anti-racists is stopping and seeing the the policy level as the highest level. Yeah, but yeah, is that culture yeah, sure. in the narrative is actually the highest? Mm-hmm. 
then policy, right? Um, that's why I always say some of the work that we have to do is shift the narrative, and, um, the cultural narrative, that American exceptionalism, right? That's, the, that's about cultural narrative. You shift that, a whole other, it's easy to put other things in place if you can shift that narrative, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, um, yeah. um, and so that, it's powerful. These things shape people's sense of identity and meaning in the world and everything. Um, it grounds mm. them. It gives them an interpretation of everything that they understand and make sense of. And so um, we can't only think about policy change. We've got to hit that narrative level. Yeah. The aspects of Kendi's work don't challenge the systems that can that operate behind the the that dude in the second pew yeah it's not calling it or it's not even i'm sure he does later on or in other work calling out and naming the systems that are play underneath that are propping up and pushing uh policy development and makers to act in the manners that they do uh which as if we were to connect activism and 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 policy making as you were sharing the story on voting and, and, and voting rights, there is an aspect of we simply have so many white folks in as policymakers that to we still have to wait another generation or two before we have more voices. This could be different in, in the States than, than it is in Canada right now. But you're seeing the slow shift of more black and brown faces in places of power but that's still not a guarantee of whether or not they will upset a system. They could very much still uphold power systems yeah. and the alert of the overarching narratives of whatever might be exceptionalism, right? Black and brown people can do that too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely.